Hello, and welcome to Lots and Familiar, the show that remembers that the 12-inch of Santa Claus on the Doll by Spitting Image had a message etched into the run-out groove which was too faint to read. I'm Tim Worthington, and joining me today to talk about some of the things that she remembers, with a bit of a twist we'll come back to in a minute, is author, restaurant critic and broadcaster Grace Dent. Grace, what you're up to and where can we find it? I think you can find me on iPlayer at the moment for the MasterChef Christmas special. And you can also find, you know, what we were watching at Christmas, which I do for BBC Four. We've got a new one of them out and we did 1991. However, on iPlayer, you can see all the other years as well. Well, I think we'll be coming back to Christmas 1991 quite a bit looking at the list, because basically what we've done is we've kind of both brought our own Christmas list to try and put together kind of the ultimate Christmas experience. So, Grace, what are we doing here exactly? I thought that it would be a good idea for us to combine our brains and come up with the ultimate looks unfamiliar Christmas day or Christmas period full of all those things that we'd really like to see on television or brought out of the archives which I mean we have no power to do that literally none but we're going to kind of work together and create the ultimate Christmas. Well let's just get straight on with it with an advert which I think kind of encapsulates everything you were talking about there. Have a cracking Christmas at Woolworth the cracker of a Christmas shopping spree. Woolworth prices many of them crack down Christmas Woolworth is the place to be. Hey Grace, have a cracking Christmas at Woolworths. Why'd you pick this? Well, for a start, did you just hear that song? How many years ago was that? So that was 1981. That was the Woolworths Christmas advert where Woolworths used to buy the entire ad break. So it would be two and a half, three minutes long. What always riles me a little when we're getting up to Christmas now in the modern days that people say that this, oh, you know, John Lewis have got this ad out as if it's event television, as if 
it's something that's just been invented. But I specifically remember the high octane excitement about the new Woolworths advert coming every Christmas because it'd have so many celebrities in it. It was always Windsor Davis. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it was so many celebrities and I would say 1981 have a cracking Christmas at Woolworths was the absolute high point of this I mean if you think about it though I was playing it today it's really just Super Trooper by ABBA isn't it if you listen I'd never realised but you're right it's very and it was one year after Super Trooper had been released and it's got that real ABBA feel but it's just magical if you see the advert which is on youtube the goodies are the main part in it and they are just kind of larking about with all these amazing things that you could buy from Woolworths, like a bon tempe organ and obviously a polaroid camera and then all the you know it's just like item after item after item of magical things with obviously donna stell and windsor davis appear at one point it's just to me it encapsulates the glee of being very little and being just being so het up and excited about Christmas and the Christmas lights and, you know, Christmas shops. And to me, that song is it. And I never meet anybody that knows the song like me. Do you remember it? I do remember it. The main reason I remember it is because the goodies were in it. And I was absolutely obsessed with the goodies. Yeah. And I loved it because they would frequently pop up in other places. Like, I remember there was a three-ply tissue advert where it started with Tim had a cold and the other two suggested, why don't we come buying our tissues you know yeah. they would do that sort of like in character thing and obviously they were in the Woolworths advert being the goodies but also Woolworths in the advert and Woolworths in real life looked like you kind of remember Christmas looking yeah. when you were really young you know you look back now and you think it must have always looked the way it looks now you know decorations would just look more sort of all pervasive when you're younger but Woolworths just seemed dazzling even yeah. though it was probably the stock was probably quite threadbare and also the bizarre kind of mission Smash of stuff they had on sale didn't really add up to Christmas but I particularly remember when I was a bit older that you could go in on you know Boxing Day the days after dark get some great stuff in the sales the only thing I was thinking about this now the only thing I can remember getting is Chicken Rhythms the only album by the Manchester band Northside who've done two great singles and then this album which is the two great singles and a load of rubbish I think it was one pound in the bargain bin Woolworths was always a good place to pick up those bargains in anything indie because it wasn't the obvious place for people to go so they would buy in there a couple of single candy flip singles and then it would they would just sit there <laughs> languishing until someone come and took them away yeah you're absolutely right Woolworths in its Christmas adverts managed to look how the shops actually felt you know there's a kind of grainy kind of homespun tinselly low-key but also you know there's like a, an early 80s magic about those adverts even the song is just it just gets me it gets me in my heart every single time well one thing that did concern me a little while I was looking into this was the only one I could find online is the one we both remember with the goodies in but apparently yeah. they did this campaign for a couple of years and I have a nasty feeling that the reason none of the others are online is they are probably quite you tree yeah. when you think about who would have been in <laughs> not really the right festive message to send out now I was going to say because also first of 
of all, there's some in this advert, the 81 advert, there's a load of Cossack dancers and it's just like it's a group of men and they come in and they're clearly a professional troupe of Cossack dancers and they do all the fantastic dancing. And then is it geisha girls that come in after that? It's, it's Japanese girls. And if you do look, two of them are definitely not Japanese. So like I looked at that and I thought... Yeah, that's very much of its time where they kind of, you know, whoever was casting it said, oh, obviously, we can get a few people that are actually from this place. But, you know, let's just make these people look a little bit like it. So, yeah, I can imagine a lot of these things have gone missing, mysteriously gone missing offline. <laughs> well, that was the same year that Anika did Japanese Boy, which, you know, is not only a record that seems quite dubious now, but she appeared on top of the pops like a disco approximation <laughs> of the Keisha Kira. Well, you know, Japanese boy by Anika is a solid gold banger right <laughs> and I absolutely it is unfortunate that it never gets played anywhere anymore because of these reasons because it's a great tune it was wonderful when it came out I remember can you remember dancing along to it at the school disco I mean it's anyway so did you have a Christmas advert that you loved yes well I mean there were some that I didn't like I never liked the Croft original ones where the sherry ones where people would say oh it's so clever and I'd just be thinking as a child no that Sorry, what's funny about that? I don't understand. It's a bit like... Now, I say this carefully because I know you have done this recently, but sometimes people in Dictionary Corner on Countdown <laughs> would tell an anecdote and the audience would be going... <laughs> and you'd be thinking, that's not actually funny. He's just said a sentence. And kind of, they reminded me of that. There was also, which was mentioned by Phil Norman on Looks Familiar, the Country Life Christmas box where all the Country Life adverts from the year were joined together, again, taking up a whole ad block. Yeah. With kind of linking bits of the butterman basically being bad danger, say, Or you like oh, this, ladies? Have a word with your wife. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of, yeah, those kind of sexually assertive <laughs> butter people. Yeah. So the Butterman would take an entire ad break too. Yes. Why? Who needed to promote butter that much? But isn't there something quite unsettling about any advert that goes on for an entire ad break? It's such a clever, or else it was, at least it was. I think we're maybe used to this a bit more now, but it felt really unsettling, almost as if it was defying the rules of how things were meant to happen. Yes, exactly that. In a way, television felt a bit safer when you were young, when you could I say when you could see the edges but you know last time you were on we talked about that Monty Python clown leaning oh, in but oh. when you knew where everything slotted together and you had several adverts in an ad break yes that somehow was more reassuring than if you got a big one take up the whole thing why does it feel scary does it feel as if the company have got too much power and it's too <laughs> much of a mind control? If suddenly, like, oh, I don't know. Well, look, look, long story short, it was the goodies. It was Windsor Davis being exactly him, doing the thing that he did. You know the Windsor Davis face when he would kind of come <laughs> like that? That's all he did for like 35 years. Well, the advert that I really associate with Christmas and has never resurfaced anywhere is one that could never take up a whole ad break because it barely took up a whole ad in itself which was Tesco did the thing in 1982 where you know when checkouts as in well I say computerised you know, they had an LED screen on the till oh my goodness me how futuristic yeah. when they first became a thing they brought out adverts 
it's advertising the checkout. Where it had kind of it's like a cross <laughs> between the generation game and sort of let's pretend with the checkout conveyor belt yeah. and a kind of electro pop thing with voices going, check it out, check it out. And then it had you know those sort of eighties women session singers you got like when they redid the Pebble Mill theme in the early eighties as an electro pop thing. Yeah. Had that kind of like today's Tesco <laughs> kind of vocals. It had that, but Christmas in nineteen eighty two, they patched over the top her going Christmas eighty two over the check it out check it out that's all it was it was so cheaply done I often wondered if do you remember when do you remember there was a French and Saunders Christmas special very early on yeah. where it was before they'd really taken off and it had the regular theme tune you know the French and Saunders with Dawn shouting Christmas special over the top and I genuinely wonder if that was inspired by the Christmas 82 check it out today's Tesco advert because it was so cheap and nasty at the same time as trying to you know they were acting like these tills with the ZX80 or a VHS video they were just tills that's all it was but it's like the future is here I love how understimulated we were at this point that them changing the tills at the supermarket <laughs> was so exciting it was so it's like that is what you're going to go to the supermarket to do rather than buy food just to hang ghoulishly around the till trying to see the yeah there's this kind of tomorrow's world-esque vision <laughs> yeah no i've see i've never i feel like i've seen this advert now that you've sang that to me you've got a very beautiful voice <laughs> not everyone says that <laughs> Okay, well, I have a nasty feeling I might end up singing again during this. But before we go down that road, let's move on to your next choice. And here's some voices you might recognise. Hello. Hello. What do you think you're doing throwing partially drunk milk bottles through my window? Well, you haven't got a doorbell, have you? And no, we haven't got a doorbell, but you could have knocked, couldn't you? No, I couldn't, actually, because I've sprained my wrist. Have you? How'd you do that? Throwing the bottle through the window. Anyway, that's not even my window. That's my window. Oh, that one. That one. Now, come inside. Okay, that was very evidently Vickery's and Bob Mortimer in 1992's The Weekenders. Grace, where does this fit into your ultimate Christmas experience? When I eventually come to power, Christmas Day at around 7 o'clock on Channel 4, all of Britain will sit down and watch this pilot that Vic and Bob made in 1992 called The Weekenders. I am actually secretly pleased that The Weekenders was never made into a series because I think that in its 20 nine minutes of glory it is so perfect and so clever and so brilliant and I still when I watch it scene by scene still can't believe they quite got it made because there's so much work that has got you know budget wise and thought wise and time wise there is so much work that has gone into the weekenders and not a lot of sense you know not a lot of coherent sense so I always try to think when I watch things like this of them trying to sell the concept of it and trying to sell when you know when all the trucks of tv people arrive trying to tell them what they're even doing you know oh right okay we're going to stage a slow motion police chase 
over a field, but everybody's hats are going to kind of fall off, but they're going to be attached on pieces of wood so that like it looks like they're running in slow motion. And that'll just be, you know, 15 seconds or something like that. The Weekenders is about Vic and Bob, but Vic is being called Jim, his name, going to a meat festival. And it's a meat festival in a field and there's only two stalls and one of them is manned by Philoki. (laughs) That is the plot and the rest of it is just 29 minutes of deeply surreal mayhem and explosions and tiny little nonsensical conversations. But you know that the rhythms of them are so beautiful that you can just listen to them again and again and again. So yeah, I love The Weekenders. Are you a Weekenders fan? I absolutely am. It's very important to me because it's kind of the last thing that they did that was like the original incarnation of, well, I say Vic and Bob, it was really just Vic at that point and Bob was, you know, to them he wasn't the sidekick but the public saw him as that and at first they were more like a weird act they were like somebody off I don't know Viva Cabaret or something who'd somehow broken through to the mainstream and they obviously eventually got wise to that and thought we need to be a bit more aware of a wider audience so that's why I think the Smell of Reeves and Mortimer was a bit more kind of widely targeted but I really loved them in that initial phase when they were so surreal and so strange Do you remember them popping up on Jonathan Ross was it the last resort what was his I think it was tonight with Jonathan Ross they were I remember Vic being on the tube actually yes Yes, they were. But for me, Big Night Out was my... I mean, I did watch Python when I was younger. I've spoken about it on the show before. But for me, they were kind of my Python. You know, that like I remember, you know, I found Big Night Out the first time I saw it in real time on my television screen. It was life changing. The oddness of it and the influences I really got all of the different you know he looked he was a kind of a Jim Reeves type of cruiser you know he was the songs he was saying and you know like the man with the stick and like the painful story of the man with the stick when he would turn up every week and talk about good laugh Terry this guy that worked in his factory and all these tiny little threads I just found that intensely and I got really swept up in it you know I watched it continuously on VHS and went to see them when they played in Newcastle you know that was when they got to the point where they were Dizzy, which I never really approved of, to be honest. I don't think I approved of Dizzy. That's interesting because I was never that mad on Dizzy, but I did love I Will Cure You, the album, which did have Philoki on, which I'll come back to in a minute. But it's really weird to think that that's kind of been forgotten about now, but it was kind of done as if, you know, Vic was an actual club singer who made an album. It wasn't Mm. really a comedy album as such. And that kind of shows how they were thinking at that point. There was definitely a big dose for me of these were my my special precious thing though you know <laughs> these are my there was a point where they were an obscure thing and I you know some people just really didn't get it at all so I suppose suddenly yeah seeing them in this really upbeat and I do I you know I love the wonder stuff they were you know one of the earliest bands that I started going I absolutely loved them but that combination wasn't very keen I've met Bob Mortimer a couple of times and he is wonderful and I once spoke to him very very briefly online about the weekenders I'm always really cagey when I ask anybody who was in something that I'm often they don't remember you know mm. and it really hurts you like <laughs> I once met I once met Mo Wenner Banks at a party and I knew one of the songs that they sang on absolutely like backwards you know what I mean I knew it so well oh which one? Oh, the queen is nice and she <laughs> shakes hands and the crew you know like 
because she's a credit to the nation and she said I have no memory of doing that sketch not <laughs> like <laughs> it's just awful not because I'm embarrassed or like you know that I said it but it's it's like you want it to be as important to them but yeah I mentioned to Bob Mortimer about this character that's in the weekend is called Electric Russell which just makes me laugh every time I think about it Jim and Bob goes to this working men's club and they're just trying to have like a pint and there's a turn on tonight electric russell and it's just this guy on electric on an electric guitar just like he's just doing full kind of level 42 he's very level 42 what he's playing but two old men have just walked straight up to him and they're just about six inches from his face watching all the time as old Bick and Bob you can't explain it you have to be there I said it to Bob and he was very he was actually very gracious and very thrilled and did remember doing it if you go on YouTube and look for the weekenders there is a version of it that they played when they got it out of the archive in I think 2005 with Channel 4 and they record a little bit at the beginning talking about it which is interesting you can see all behind the scenes stuff Phil Oakey is amazing as well yes and that's the the weird thing about that is that at that point I don't think the Human League stock could have been lower he was on I Will Cure You with Vic on they did a cover of Black Knight by Deep Purple but the Human League just before that they'd had I can't even remember what the album was called in 1990 but they had Heart Like a Wheel which I think just got into the top 40 and Soundtrack to a Generation which I think might not have charged it. There were like yesterday's news and there were things like there was that brilliant strip in Biz, The Adventures of the Human League in Outer Space, where they land a rocket on a planet where there's a war and say, why not have a pop concert instead of a war? About 18 months after this, they had quite a huge comeback. And yeah. then, you know, they've been relatively stable since then. But this is the one period where, because he still looks in this like he did in the 80s. I love that he completely commits to this project. He's standing in this field and he's behind this kind of wonky trestle table. And it's meant to be a meat festival. He's only got about three sausages. That's it. It's, he's got on like these kind of backless chaps with like... <laughs> He's just, he looks as if he's kind of going to, at the very, the very least, a sex party. But he's just, there's something, and he's so, what I love about Phil Oakey is he's always quite serious, you know? He's got a little twinkle in his eye, but, he, you know, he plays the role quite seriously. Yeah, look, The Weekenders is one of the most marvellous things ever made. They should be really, really proud of that. Well, I would imagine it was quite expensive as well, because it looks like an Ealing comedy. And in fact, a lot of the humour is like a surreal twist on that but it must have been really expensive to do but apparently Channel 4 did want to do a series but as long as they did another series of Big Night Out as well and they'd already said they'd done interviews by them I remember one in Vox in particular where the interviewer was incredulous that they were dropping all the old characters but they were saying no Tinker's rucksack's gone the Ponderer's not doing them again and they said Graham Lister and apparently they paused and said he might come back in another form. But they'd already committed themselves to moving on. And they clearly really wanted to do this. Like you, I'm kind of glad it's this one-off that's got this, you know, almost mythical status. But it deserved a series. And it's weird that they wouldn't let them do it without doing something they didn't want to do as well. I was going to say it has a feeling at times of like on the buses. It doesn't have that kind of humour though, thankfully. Yeah, it's not that type of humour, but that kind of incidental kind of quirky organ music haunting them sometimes where 
wherever they go. But then, yeah, then it'll break into napalm death. They'll go and they'll chase. They'll go on a chase and then just end up like wrestling on the floor. So who was your favourite Big Night Out character? My favourite Big Night Out character of all was Donald and Davy Stott. I remember yeah. having hysterics uh, when they yeah. do film 82 where we look at some of the great films in 1985 and they sing their own lyrics to I wish I knew how it would feel to be free, which I think from memory, it's you can't hear the first bit and then it's Clint Eastwood and Gloria Honeyfoot. They make films that are for your eyes from Hollywood. <laughs> you know, whenever I see somebody being really pretentious about films anywhere, like that ridiculous thing the other day about that columnist who was upset because somebody leaving Spider-Man No Way Home said it was good that and he thought they're ruining my cinema experience. I just think, you know, they make films that are for your eyes. Just try and see it on that level. Do you remember Action Image Exchange? It meant to be like a touring, raising consciousness drama group and like sometimes when I'm writing something for The Guardian and someone says, oh, what are you doing? What are you doing? What have you got on? And I, I kind of I find myself going, I'm writing something about the facelessness of bureaucracy and I tell you something for nothing, it is bloody faceless. <laughs> It's just a big Reeves line. But yeah, it, they're, they're in my head all the time. Well, I remember really liking, you know, you say about one-off characters. Do you remember Sir Lloyd Crisp, the disappearing hazelnut man? Who just came out before an ad break and they'd eaten him by the time they came back. <laughs> a man made of hazelnuts. I always think one of the funniest things I've ever seen in my life was when Bob got his own desk. Do you remember when... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> And then Pop had this little desk and I don't know what it is about it, but every time I think about it, it's just, but that was the beauty of it. The idea, they, they kind of, they set them up as jealous of each other and petty and and ridiculous and childlike. Sorry, I've just gone off on a Vickery thing, but yeah, The Weekenders, it's just a pleasure and it's a pleasure to speak to someone else that remembers it because I feel like I spent my entire life in the abyss. But yeah, Christmas Day, when my glorious five-year plan comes to fruition, will be seven o'clock watching the weekenders well mine would be i've been trying to think how i got to see this i've no idea how given the time slot it was on and apparently it was never repeated i assumed it was but i've looked into that and it wasn't the crystal cube which you see this is why i'm confused apparently it was only july 1983 reasonably late at night i don't know how i would have seen it but i did see it which is a stephen fry and hugh laurie pilot when they were virtually unknown which is kind of spoofing things like tomorrow's world and so on if anyone's never seen it it's a little like it's somewhere between brass eye and look around you yes. and it's clearly yes. intended to be almost plausible but is very visibly and blatantly silly at the same time now, there's all kinds of like ridiculous gags in it in the middle of what are the cutely observed current affairs and science show send-ups and it's kind of disappeared it wasn't on the dvds of a bit of fry and laurie it doesn't quite succeed in what it sets out to do it's them emma thompson robbie coltrane paul shearer who was in a lot of their early things as well and it yeah. it doesn't quite know what it's doing but it's still it's deserving of much wider exposure i think yeah i had heard about it but never really properly watched it and i sat down recently there's a very very bad quality blurry version of it on youtube emma thompson is kind of doing almost miss money sterling isn't she yes yeah she's quite a you know a very clipped pop 
posh tomorrow's world presenter isn't she so there was there's definitely an element to me as well of victoria wood as seen on tv taking the mick out of what telly actually looks like but i do think that the humor is great i can see how you feel the same as me that if you looked at some of the dross that was being played around that point there's no reason why that shouldn't have been made however if the toss up was that we were gonna lose a bit of fry and Laurie, then no i'd rather that they did that well i was thinking back to i was really obsessed with fry and Laurie from very early on i loved saturday night fry the radio 4 series i used to really look forward to them turning up on saturday live and friday night live and yeah. looking back i think it was because they were actually angrier and more shocking and more outrageous than i think pretty much any of the other alternative comedians but they sort of got away with it because they acted like people off radio 3 is the best way of putting it it was a bit like the difference between you know the actual punks and david bowie in the era of punk where he was probably making music that was actually more abrasive but you know by that point he was in his suit and tie phase and being chummy on nationwide and so on and it felt more acceptable than maybe it actually was because you watch some i mean even in this there was something that quite shocked me it was when hugh Laurie is professor max bellhaven of the bastard institute in california which in 1983 is quite shocking really and then you think of some of the stuff that's in the bit of fry and Laurie, some of that there are words that you cannot say on television now but they found a way of saying them in the late 80s because they were just so erudite they were able to run rings round anyone trying to censor's not quite the right word but influence what they said because they were just cleverer i would love them to do something again i mean i'm usually not very big on people you know doing reunions or reviving old shows or whatever but i think it was about their personalities they seem no less upset with the state of the world they seem to have lost none of their comic and musical abilities because although there's no music in this although weirdly the theme music is the garden party by mezzo forte which i assume you know yeah people listening might think they don't know it but it's a thing that goes that was used behind every tonight on bbc one thing for about six years in the 80s but i think they would still produce something as good now and they were living together at that point though this is when i had him on my podcast i don't know why this blew me away but when they left uni they bought a house together like that is such a sensible thing to do like you know it's so sensible it's so they bought one in hackney that was like near where i live Uh, paul whitehouse was the painter and decorator that came around and did the painting and stuff but do you know something you sold it to me I'd like to see them do all this stuff again I think everybody needs to go to YouTube and just kind of go with it even though it might make you feel a little bit seasick by the end well they could do that or they could travel back in time and tune into Radio 1 late at night around Christmas because this is your next choice Grace and it's something that I used to really look forward to produced by Robin Guthrie that's the gun club from the OP Mother Juno the Breaking Hands and that's at number 48 in the festive 50 <clears throat> excuse me number 47 well, the first of the surprises for me, I mean, a, a gratifying surprise, a record I only played a couple of times on the radio, and I don't think anybody else played it at all. This is at 47. OK, the unmistakable voice of John Peel introducing the festive 50. Grace, ultimate Christmas. I don't even need to ask where this fits in, do I? If I had to create my ultimate Christmas, and I know this isn't possible, but if I did have the power to be able to just go back in time, I would be in the kitchen, it would be Christmas Day, And this actually happened. I would be washing the dishes and I'd be listening to the tape that I'd made over the last weeks of the Festive 50. The one that sticks in my mind is the tape that I had, which was 50 to about 42, right? (laughs) 
<laughs> Number 50 is your boy, John. I'm getting obscure here. Number 50 was Tallulah Gosh. Tallulah Gosh. <laughs> 49, Beatmasters featuring Cookie Crew, Rock the House. 48 was Gun Club, Breaking Hands. What a song. The one that I still feel magical when I hear. Number 47, Colorblind James Experience, considering a move to Memphis. Obviously, I've got to tell you the other ones. So number 46, there was Mars Pump Up the Volume. 45 was Smith's Shoplifters of the World Unite. 44, no spoilers, but I'm going to talk about them later, but I'll surface. (laughs) 43, New Order, 1963. And then there was a big black L Dopa, Jesus and Mary Chain, 9 million rainy days. I remember having that cassette. And you know when you just played the same things again and again and again? Although, I I mean, I do love, I still love the Gun Club and Breaking Hands. But Colorblind James Experience was such a strange... I was listening to it the other day again. It's got a real vampire weekend quality about it. It's this guy... Uh, I'm not sure where he was from. They're an American band and he just talks about considering a move to Memphis. I don't know very much about Colorblind James' experience other than when I started looking recently, I found that the lead singer had died and he had eventually moved to Memphis for a short amount of time and then moved back to, I think they were from upstate New York. So yeah, it's just, you know, just a really wonderful, simple, exciting time in my life. And the Festive 50, you know, you're right. It was bloody amazing every year to have, you know, Know, and it all goes back to taping it you know we taped it on because i know that home taping was killing music but <laughs> it, it, also, it was also making our lives you know a thousand times better in a lot of cases well this was music as well i mean yeah home taping was killing music so we were told by the inner bags of haircut 100 albums but <laughs> there was also the case that the kind of things john peel was playing even just some of the ones you read out there were quite difficult to get hold of i mean one thing that was sticks in my mind was coming from quite a big city i'd always wondered who those mail order record adverts in the NME and Melody Maker were for mm. you know because I used to think but surely you can just go to you know even if it's just an independent local shop you can get them there until I went to university and I met people who grew up in the country who had to send off for Inspiral Carpets records and so on Yeah. so <laughs> it wasn't easy to get hold of this stuff then yeah. so the Festive 50 just having this all in one place felt like a kind of validation of you know liking I mean I like Top 40 music as well quite a lot actually but the festive 50 having everything you know together and play even just in that list you know you got the contrast between the jesus and mary chain and the beat masters featuring the cookie crew it was saying it's all right to you know things were less tribal then how i remember it in school is whether you liked indie or you liked american indie or hip-hop was quite kind of exclusionary at that point but people who liked stuff that wasn't you two basically will congregate together even though they have very little in common and the festive 50 kind of reflected that really yeah I mean there's a in this list I mean there's a lot of Smith but then there's also Prince Sign of the Times Eric B and Rakeem paid in full there's loads of Smiths actually oh my gosh number 22 is Motorcycle Boy Big Rock Candy Mountain what a track I've got that on 12 inch somewhere and then uh, Stop Killing Me by The Primitives Rebel Without a Pause by Public Enemies in there yeah look I think that that creeping up to Christmas period when John Peel went through and started to put you know you can almost hear him saying it though can't you what he would he would explain that he was putting together his festive 50 and it was appointment listening you'd be sitting in your 
bedroom in your mother's house, you know, genuinely excited about what was going to get on the list and then, you know, walking around for the next two or three months with your Walkman listening to it. So these things seemed huge then and also real and not just a, you know, a product of marketing or people pulling strings to get places. It genuinely felt like John Peel felt this and felt it wholeheartedly. Do you know what I mean? I know exactly what you mean. And I always loved the way that you could tell he actually thought this, but he would be quite comically grumpy in his <laughs> presentation things, complaining about either there weren't enough records by the fall in the festive 50 or the ones that are in there weren't high enough. I love that. Like, So number nine is fall, hit the north. Do you want to guess what number one was? I am going to take a wild guess. There, it was a wedding present. Is that your final answer, Tim? I'm completely guessing at that. The 1987 festive 50, number one, was birthday by Sugar Cubes. We'd never seen anything like the sugar cubes i do think to this day though that bjork was absolutely right to go out on her own because some of those sugar cube songs are quite patchy she's there doing her beautiful you know angelic screeching and then there's that guy who just kind of comes in and goes i am looking at a lake <laughs> bjork is like literally one of the top five female performers in the world and now then there's like somebody like oh, who was it was it her ex-husband or something and he was just phoning in half the time there's also My Foolish Heart by the Bundu Boys. Just the words, the Bundu Boys, just gives me festive whiplash, like right back. <laughs> you know, listening to Peel. That's kind of the depressing thing about the way you get celebrated now is it's always, always, and this has got some bearing about something we'll come on to, white guitar bands. Where has he played so I mean, my main memories are things like, you know, later on, he played a lot of things like drill and bass that were almost unlistenable, but he would not let it go with Joan Armstrong trading even yeah. long after she'd ceased to be kind of a you know a John Peel type artist he still supported yeah. her Pet Shop Boys he liked a lot you know it was all very it was much more eclectic than what has become his brand allows for yeah you don't see any mention of Ivor Cutler when people talk about John Peel you know he was forever in session reading out his drollery no you know he played a lot of like rave when it first I remember mm. you know listening to him playing you know whatever Finney Tribe and I'm pretty sure that I heard my first Moby on John Peel. I don't know. Anyway, he was an incredibly important person in so many people's musical histories. But yeah, I'm still going back to the Colourblind James experience, which was kind of a novelty record, but meant a lot to me. Do you remember it? I do. But the main Festive 50 I remember, because it never happened, was 1991, which <laughs> the story is that he got really annoyed that so many people were voting for Nirvana, because never mind, they'd just come out. And there's kind of one thing I struggled with even at the time was John Peel's contrarianism. You know, he would take against bands like, for example, the Divine Comedy, Saint Etienne, the Stone Roses, despite championing bands that sounded exactly like them. But he got very against Nirvana when they got very big. And I remember thinking at the time, well, it was mainly because of your support that they broke through. It's a bit like Schrodinger's Peel session. You know, like, <laughs> would they have been successful without your support? So you can't really complain now. But he did, he dismissed it that year and said the results weren't good enough. But I remember that year getting the NME with the singles of the year list in and I've always gone back to that because it's such an amazing list of well you know 50 singles that a lot of them he wouldn't have played probably because he again he could be quite yeah. picky about that you know Saint Etienne are quite high on it they ever played the KLF that much 
there's no other way which he hated Blur early on later changed his tune but it's just an amazing collection of records I'm sure most people listening will know I actually wrote a book about very heavily represented on here of four creation records albums that came out late in 1991 there's a Scream of by Primal Scream Fox Space Alpha by Saint Etienne Loveless by My Bloody Valentine and Bandwagon S by Teenage Fan Club and all their singles are on the list but there's all kinds of other things like Get the Message by Electronic what a song Motown Junk the early Manic Street Preachers one where the streets have no name by the Pet Shop Boys Endless Art by A House not a lot of people remember that but those that remember it remember it really fondly What Do I Have to Do by Kylie Minogue but the main thing I remember about this was reading it with my then sixth form girlfriend we were going through the list and you know we knew most of the things on it I think there were a few things like we probably never heard Not Superstitious by Leatherface but there's a record on there that we knew nothing about that sounded really intriguing My Legendary Girlfriend by a band called Pulp And we were just obsessed with this record that just somehow just sounded, just from that title and name of the band, absolutely amazing. It took a long time to track it down. I'd taken to calling her my legendary girlfriend in the interim. Then we got (laughs) hold of it. Then we heard the lyrics. It wasn't the best thing to call somebody you quite liked, but I've always remembered it for that reason, that somehow Pulp were almost calling to me just through this list. And although my relationship with them changed a lot over the years, those first couple of singles and the intro album, I was so excited by what they were doing. I can't say if it wasn't for the singles of the year in the NMA in 1991, I wouldn't have discovered Pulp, because obviously, you know, they were going to become massive. But I am so glad that that fired my enthusiasm I went to the they did the joint tour before the word Britpop had even been invented with Saint Etienne that was one of the best gigs I've ever been to in fact I just mentioned that in passing on Twitter recently and a lot of people sort of appear to say oh my god I went to see that tour wasn't it life changing and I don't know if my legendary girlfriend made Peel's Abandoned Festive 50 but I think he made the mistake dismissing what was going on that year but I remember that whole issue of the NMA really fondly because it was the last I mean the Christmas ones always had that end of term feel but this is the last one before there was the huge shake up in the editorial staff and then the writing staff it's the last one where you got David Quantic Andrew Collins and Stuart McConey just being (laughs) silly at the end of the year and they did the parody of Rock Family Trees in that which is one of the full Funniest things I've ever read. The quantic days of enemy were just fantastic. What well, you know, I think one of the best things about Twitter is just that Quantic's there every day, just being his like arch curmudgeon self. And I do adore him. I do adore. Him. I did a TV show with him last year. It was about comedy, and he just sat down and just basically began to argue with me that Blackadder is not a good comedy. <laughs> and like. <laughs> The crosser and crosser I got. You can see the like unfettered glee flickering behind his eyes. He's an arch curmudgeon, but we do love I him. I absolutely love that. Sometimes he'll quote tweet you and say LP winner, and you can't tell whether he is voicing approval or utter, utter <laughs> disapproval, and I don't want it any other way. Actually, in our ultimate Christmas, when Santa arrives and he's somebody just in a costume, <laughs> I want underneath it, it's quantic. <laughs> Well, I just can't talk anymore, so this is a a good point to move on to your next choice. (laughs) It's the voice of somebody you will probably not associate with most of the records John Peel played. Back to Star Search with Keith Chegwin. 
Thank you. Warm welcome back. Who are we going to make a star today? Could it be the two lads we saw before the commercial break? They were, I don't know, one's a technician for British Telecom, the other's a finance officer. Susie, it's all about opinions first of all. What do you think? Okay, yes, that was Keith Chegwin introducing some variety acts on Sky Star Search. Grace, where in the day does this come? Oh, you know, it's a time of year where I am feeling very nostalgic and I'm, I'm reminiscing a lot about times I spent with my dad who, you know, is no longer around. And if I could have any time back with my dad around Christmas time, it would be watching this awful talent show and I don't know if anybody else remembers it apart from me the only time I ever meet people who know this it's because they've been on it it was Sky Star Search it was the very the most the earliest days of Sky TV we were quite flash so we ended up with a satellite on the side of our house and we, we had Sky and they weren't playing they didn't have many television programs to play it was all a bit you know low rent but they had this Keith Chegwin fronted talent show live every night at about four o'clock it was bizarre and the caliber of the people that came on was awful you know the majority of people <laughs> the singers that couldn't sing couldn't sing at all but they you know they would belt through a patsy klein cover and then it would go on to a juggler who could juggle no better than you know a child he could maybe get three balls in the air at the same time and that would be like three minutes of television and then on to you know kind of a, a keyboard and like a two-piece act but you could see that they'd fallen out before they'd come on stage <laughs> And they were like arguing. And then it would go to the judges. The judges would be people like Faith Brown and Bernard Manning was there a lot. Gary Crowley, Melvin Hayes. It was like this revolving door of everyone that was available. They filled space every single night on Sky Live. And me and my dad, my dad used to work very, very long hours. At this point, he was working for himself. And he would work from like five in the morning. And then he would have a break at about 3.34. You'd often find him sitting in the living room. And he would just instinctively stick this on. And if I can hear anything in my head, it's just him roaring and laughing. Like my dad was like very much like Jim Royal off the Royal Family, proper like Scouser. He had that element about him. And I could just hear my dad going, Grace, Grace, come in, look at these silly buggers. And you'd walk in and it'd be like, you know, some kind of dance troupe that couldn't dance or like, you know, or just, oh, and it was just magical. So hang on. Do you remember this at all? I don't remember it because I didn't see Sky for quite a long time. I mainly know of it because, you know, clips of it will turn up on things where it really, really kind of breaks my heart a bit that Keith Chagwin became a bit of a laughing stock for no real reason. All he was doing was getting the work that was offered to him. But when I think back to when we were kids, when he was doing Swap Shop and Checkers Plays Pop, he was a brilliant presenter. He was yeah. ideal for live TV. He was like Anton Decker with it now. He knew exactly yeah. what to do, exactly what to say, exactly how to react to things. And apparently how he got the job on Swap Shop in the first place, you know he'd been a child actor and so on, but he just wrote in to the children's department, to the BBC and said hello, I'm like 15 or whatever I am. I've been acting for a couple of years. I think I'm really good and I've got loads of ideas. When do you want me to come in and talk? 
And they just thought, do you know what? That kind of cheek is what we need for, you know, because we're planning to do a live thing with Noel Edmonds on Saturday morning. And they thought, that's exactly the sort of person who won't be phased by technical breakdowns or whatever. Admittedly, you know, he had personal problems that affected his work and so on. But I think he should be given a fairer crack of the whip. And he even seems to be quite capable hosting this because he's sympathetic to the act at the same time as addressing the fact they're not very good. I mean, why would he turn down Sky Star Search? They made 424 episodes. <laughs> Apparently none of which were archived, I found out the other day. It's only off Earth that survived of it. I've got to say there'll be people that appeared on it that are absolutely over the moon that it's not archived because, <laughs> you know, so many times these acts would say they'd really mess it up, you know, like their, whatever, their synths would stop working or like whatever. And when they came to the judges, they'd start arguing going, well, we only had five minutes. We only, we only got... <laughs> We got out of the van and then we couldn't get into the studio and like this be like arguing because clearly it didn't set them up to. But then you know then they'd have to go in front of Anita Harris or Derek Nimmo or Cleo Rockus or you know Frank Carson or Nina Mishkow. One of my ex-boyfriends years ago he piped up one day that you know when he was been in this band that he used to always talk about. He said that they'd been on television and then he said they'd been on Sky Star Search and I honestly was so happy and started basically kind of wanting him to tell me all about it and then I realised that he was deadly serious and like was actually quite wounded by the whole experience but you know I couldn't stop laughing but anyway they are on YouTube somewhere but yeah I think most people that were on it are quite glad that it's gone well apparently Czech has said when somebody asked him about it anybody who wanted to be on it was on it because like you say there were hundreds of these things when you think you know this was around the same time new faces came back there was Bob says opportunity not Saturday Superstore search for a star but all of those things were you know 12 Mm. weeks at the outside and once a week as well it wasn't even like now where you get you know the voting show and the highlight show as well they were very limited so generally I'm not saying every act on any of those was good but there would generally be a higher standard because of less time to fill but I think Sky Star Search were probably just dragging people in off the street against their will almost like you know in cowboy films where they shoot the floor and say dance yeah i mean like you know those early days of sky if you're kind of one of the people that had made the probably very unwise financial decision to put a satellite dish on the side of your house in carlisle it was it was like being in some kind of secret club we had mtv as well like one of the first people to have mtv but like they only had about four videos and one of them was i mean i've got to say one of them was enjoy the silence by depeche mode which i could listen to forever just on repeat but there was that song do you remember that song baker man baking bread they just used to play that all day with the video of someone skydiving was it baker man by baker man so yeah back in those days i remember it, it was a case of you know you paid for your six channels and then you got like 140 german channels and not, as none of us spoke german it was it was a bit the of a best thing time. about the german channels i'm sure most people respect me to say the fact that they went a bit rude after a certain time of night but to me it was yeah. that they showed old itv and bbc things in the middle of the night dubbed into German and so you'd yeah. see like an episode of the UFO with Straker being called Stracker I remember seeing <laughs> of all things Blackadder goes forth on one of the German channels subtitled and if you ever want to know what Wibble is in German it's W-I 
That big B thing, L. Wibble. So I suppose technically it's Vissel, isn't it? Yeah, well, what I would say is if you want a laugh, just go and find the few episodes that are available. Carve out an afternoon of watching it because you'll feel so much better about yourself. Well, the thing I put on is something else that no longer exists in the archives and which I have never seen and pretty much nobody I know has ever seen. I won't go too far sort of in kind of intricate detail into this, but it's from 1965 in the middle of a huge 12 part Dalek story you know because the Daleks were nearly as big as the Beatles at that point so they thought let's put them on over Christmas for 12 weeks they did the Panto episode where basically it's just they run around having comedy escapades in the police station in the film studio and so on and it controversially ends with William Hartnell turns to the camera and saying and a Merry Christmas to all of you at home which you know that makes people very concerned they're desperate to fit it into canon somehow and yeah it was just a TV programme with people being silly on Christmas Day in 1965. See, I, I don't know a lot about Doctor Who, but I, what I do know is that I would never call your fandom. You tend to take this seriously, so the thought of someone suddenly doing a Miranda piece to camera... <laughs> no... Anyway, so have you seen this? No, because there's an audio recording of it and a couple of photographs and that's it. But the main reason I want to see it, particularly on Christmas Day, is that it will be that feeling of seeing something new, of something I know well. The same way when I was really young, seeing an Elvis Presley film I'd not seen before over Christmas or one of the 60s Michael Caine ones. You know, when you look in the radio times and think, ooh, girls, 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 I've not seen that or Billion Dollar Brain or The Wrong Box. And it was, you know, you're familiar with but it's entirely new to you it's exciting that's kind of the only way I could get that now is for that to somehow be found and in fact because most of that 12 part Dalek story is missing they found one it's about 15 years ago and it was Rush released onto a DVD that I got for Christmas that yeah I was so excited I got up you know as early as I could to watch it that morning and it was the thrill of just seeing something new from something I knew backwards and yeah. I, I just love that feeling so much and it's so difficult to replicate that in this day and age. I think I got that feeling from the Mark Gatiss adaptation of The Mesotint because he's really carving out this feeling of he does something spooky and he does it at Christmas and you kind of know what it is because you've read the book or you know the story but you don't quite know how you're going to get it and there is something quite entrancing and appointment viewing ish about what he does but that is a really rare feeling now. Like I think that we're so bombarded all year by brilliant really I mean I I can't keep up right now I mean it's weird with television I feel like I've kind of you know I've got access to HBO and I've got Apple TV and I've got I've got access to Disney, which gives me, you know, a thousand other channels. And I've got Sky and I've got Netflix and like I've got Prime. And they're all going blah, 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 blah. They're all in my ear all the time, giving me amazing things or things that turn out to be crap, but they sound amazing. So it is very difficult to get that christmas feeling isn't it that feeling of kind of isn't this lovely this is special this is special Mm. this is like i'm going to cuddle in and i'm going to enjoy this yeah it's hard to get that well i'm wondering how much of a christmas feeling your next choice gave you i know what's coming up and i actually remember this going out and anyone listening to this will either love this clip or might turn off after it what's people's attitudes towards you around the rest of the world they're bored they think we need to change our presentation they don't like paying the high price Yeah, I think we've sucked the dollar that that we could suck. There were a lot of food coloring that want to get in for free. 
the next time we've got to produce. Okay, that was the butthole surfers appearing on BBC Two Snub TV in 1989. Grace, how does this tally with Christmas at all? You know, I love this clip of the butthole surfers on Snub TV. And if I had my way, I think I would put it on instead of the Queen's speech. (laughs) (laughs) I have been... I had this, I recorded this when it was on and uh, my mind was blown by Gibby Haynes and the girls called Taylor Nervosa. And it's just, to me, I felt that this was as radical and as out there as you could possibly be on television and get away with it, you know. They go and interview them in their studio and it's like they're on some very heavy duty acid or something and they're just talking at the camera i mean taylor nervosa says at one point she goes i've got a beat in mind it goes something about like this and then just starts playing this atrocious din right (laughs) (laughs) is just freaking out in his studio and then they kind of talk to rubbish for a while about Gibby Haynes talking about having a pineapple up his ass or something like that and it goes on for a bit and then it goes to a live performance of Jimmy which is from now was it from Locust Abortion Technician or was it from Hairway to Stephen Hairway to Steven I don't know how you say I think it was from Locust Abortion Technician that basically I loved Bottle Surfers when I was about 14 15 you know to me it was it was like they came from the moon you know they were just so subversive and so so different to anything I'd ever seen especially in Carlisle and you know I loved Snub and I don't think anyone ever talks about Snub TV and Snub TV was an alternative music show that was on BBC Two uh, about there was a sweet spot wasn't there about six 20 or something on BBC Two that they often kind of the dance nation slot you know well before we had access to so you know the internet and so much information about artists you really got all of your information from you know places like Snub TV and they played really really out there stuff and it was edited in a very kind of dreamy druggy obscure intelligent way it didn't treat any of its viewers like idiots it thought that they could absolutely handle seeing the butthole surfers just kind of mumbling in a completely surreal manner and I loved it you know it's funny because you know I reminisce about my dad and I kind of paint this picture like he was lovely and funny and that but then there was also when it came to stuff like this he did not understand you know I had the absolute run-ins with him that we all did where you know like get this off my screen you know (laughs) I remember him me trying to play stuff like snub and my father just being absolutely furious at it and having to run upstairs and try and get the portable telly and watch it there but you remember snub were you into it yes yeah because it was also it did it go out at the same time as rapido i seem to remember them following each other yes uh, which obviously covered similar ground but in a different way much more fast-paced and antoine de cone you know sort of being verbosely sardonic about the laws or somebody yeah Yeah, snub tv was like you say it was quite trance-like but it did go right out there because i remember this appearance by the butthole surfers had the same effect on one of my neighbors who became you know he was was like what 14 or something he became completely obsessed with them because they were one of those bands where i don't think you get this anymore like the smiths were where it was a whole world you could buy into it wasn't just you bought their album there were all the things that were interesting because i remember he got things like he got 
an album by Gibby Haynes' father, who used to be a children's entertainer. It was so much more than just their music. And I remember they did a video, I think, for Snub TV. But when I say they did a cover of Hurdy Gurdy Man by Donovan, it sounds more like a wasp for three minutes. Let's be honest about that. (laughs) But they did this video on the camcorder when that was kind of, it almost felt like an act of anarchy. But they weren't being arty with it. It was just being stupid in a back garden. And although, personally, like my tastes were more, I was a bit more happy Mondays maybe than the American stuff but I remember being aware that they weren't like no disrespect to people like Babes in Toyland but they were a bit more serious and the butthole surfers were not taking anything seriously at all the only thing they took seriously was not being serious yes but there was something terrifying about the butthole surfers there was an element of deliverance or something like that about yes, they them. felt they feral the... didn't they yes there was an element of you know like a thousand yard stare about Gibby that looked as if he could kill you know and the other ones there was a feralness about them that yeah you're absolutely right there was an entire lifestyle of butthole surface that you could buy into you're exactly right it flicked between America but then they really took the whole Manchester scene really seriously I think that snub were really important in that whole scene of just going and trying to find out the actual truth of what was happening with the Mondays and the Stone Roses absolutely because it's one of the few places where if you watch the few appearances by the Stone Roses on it and it has concerts from the time I never like to mention this that much because it always sounds like I'm showing off about it but genuinely it's just because I like the first couple of singles but I saw them live twice before the first album came out and yeah. I remember thinking oh I hope that really long one they do from the end of the concerts you see I didn't know the name of it is on the album obviously it was I'm the Resurrection but you know when you see now sort of people watching them at festivals punching the air yeah. there was no rock anthem element about them back then the way that it's all treated now I mean, I don't even want to get into what Ian Brown's gone into at the moment, but it isn't anything to do with how I remember them. And that's not an elitist or, you know, possessive thing. It just baffles me. That's all I can say about it. Oh, I think that we're all watching through our fingers with Ian Brown, aren't we? I mean, because, I mean, I I like the Stone Roses, but I always loved Ian Brown's solo stuff. And I like him. And I I think that he's special and he was a bit of a national treasure. So it is. It's, it's anyway, getting back to, um, the, the magical days of Snub without Snub I would never have known about Fugazi I don't think I'd have known much about Dinosaur Junior but for the Queen's Speech Christmas Day I'm not going to put on an entire episode of Snub it's just going to be that short interview with the butthole surfers and I don't think anybody of sane mind can argue with me well I put on just for the sheer bewilderment it would cause would be I mean I had a similar relationship with the late night Friday shows on Channel 4 now I love things like The Word I love Friday at the Dome, Ring My Bell, which, you know, was terrible, but I loved it because it was so terrible. The one I really didn't like was Passengers, which is very dull documentaries about, always seems to be about punks in Sweden, you know, in 1992. And it was incredibly worthy and dull. But there was a show I loved called Naked City, which had a huge presentation team. It was Kathleen Moran, Johnny Vaughan, Andrew Collins, Stuart McConey, and Michael Smiley, who's the one everyone forgets. It had a much more kind of, whereas the other shows were a bit, you know, if you could say the word was the face and Friday at the Dome was Q. This was like Enemy or Melody Maker. It was very rough edged. It felt like, a, you know, the sort of places you would go to see the bands that are featured on it. The thing was that they didn't bring people on who were doing the PR circuit 
it would be bands like the then unknown Oasis, who, you know, I think they were on it the week Supersonic came out, you know, so nobody knew who they were. Very early example of Noel Gallagher being quite witty when he's interviewed on that. But the interview I always remember was Catelyn Moran was talking to definitely Sonia Madden from Echo Belly, and I think one of these animal men who were that really strange new wave revival band that were kind of obliterated by they had a lot of the ideas that Britpop stole, should we say, and they were just completely wiped off the face of the map by it. But the interview was about because it was in the wake of, you know, some quite unpleasant things happening in the news. And the doctors thought, we need to talk about this. Who's in the studio this week? Okay, get those two on. What do you think about attitudes to racism at the moment? And so obviously you've got Sonia, who's Anglo-Indian. You've got one of a punk revival band who obviously is pretty much saying fuck the BMP every second sentence. And basically the discussion was just kind of, what do you think of it? Well, it's terrible. You know, it's wrong. (laughs) And it didn't go anywhere. They were just lumbered with this interview that just like hung in the air. Nothing wrong with it. It's just they had they could they had nothing to say because it was three people who thought exactly the same. And you've got no debate there at all. I've searched for that. I've not been able to find assuming I am correct and it was one of these animal men, but I would love to see that again, particularly in place of the Queen's speech. Well, I mean what Naked City did, you know, they did kind of suddenly go, and now we're gonna have a round table debate about sexism in the media and it's going to be Carleen from the uh, Young Disciples. It's on you from Echo Belly and you know God bless Catelyn sitting in the middle trying to get a debate going but you're exactly right you know nobody was going to say I think sexism's really good make it worse if anything Naked City never really gets spoken about but it was incredibly important these little pockets of kind of quiet edgy anarchy that were happening on our television it's you know without sounding like an old crone before internet they were everything they were everything, you know? They were life rafts to another world. They were wonderful. Okay, well, moving on to your next choice. This is a real pocket of anarchy on television. That was Mick. Give it some stick by Chaz and Dave from Chaz and Dave's Christmas Knees Up. Grace, I think it's quite obvious what this is doing here. I always think that the sound of Christmas is Chaz and Dave. And some people give me funny looks about this. But if you know, look, if you know, you know, right? And there was a point in the 80s when Chaz and Dave just won the nation's hearts really quickly. And it wasn't just a London thing. It wasn't just a Cockney thing. Chaz and Dave were big in the north. They were big in Scotland. And they were big because they were good they were brilliant songwriters incredible musicians the reason why i'm picking mick give it some stick is because the drummer mick never really gets a shout out but you know he is an incredible incredible drummer and this was an attempt by Chaz and dave to in the middle of playing things like you know they would always they're very well known for rabbit and ain't no pleasing you and all that but this was a song where it was just him it has a massive drum solo in the middle <laughs> Mick give it some stick and then Mick just plays the drums and it's marvellous the thing that we played just then the clip that we played is the Christmas special of Chaz and Dave it went out in 1982 it was recorded in a huge it's in a studio but they've made it look like a pub they filled it with people they've clearly given it's an early form of Hootenanny where everybody there is clearly <laughs> and I've been to Hootenanny and I did get so drunk I had to have 
two days off work afterwards. It's like that, where clearly the crowd at this Chas and Dave party are completely drunk. They played it again in 2014. Channel 5 got it out and started playing it again. Because there is, it's just absolutely wonderful. What I would say is that... (laughs) The Christmas knees up at one point had a set in the middle by Jim Davidson. And when it was played in 2014, Jim has like been snipped out of the middle of the chair. He's just gone. Eric Clapton was a big Chas and Dave fan and he was in the recording and he plays on the Chas and Dave 1982 Christmas special. So I'm wondering if they ever, if they ever play it again. Maybe he'll be gone next time. <laughs> All that's going to be left is mixed drum solo. <laughs> exactly. It'll just keep getting it out and it'll just be shorter and shorter and shorter. I'm a massive Chas and Dave fan and I got to see them play live once. It makes me sad that they're not around anymore because... I think more and more people, as the legacy goes on, are waking up to the fact that they were incredible, incredible musicians. Well, they really were, because they had that long career of trying to be serious musicians, mm-hmm. you know, successful serious musicians. Before that, they played on all kinds of hit singles, the session men. Chaz worked with Joe Meek quite a lot, which, mm-hmm. let's just say he had mixed memories of that. But, you know, they'd obviously reached stage where they thought, let's just do what we love. And that was what connected with people. Yes. And they were. What is written the equation now is they were quite funny themselves you know when you see them on like Russell Harty or something and he chats to them afterwards where it's such a contrast to the bit of Graham Norton I always dread is when he has the musical act on and then he brings them on with the guests yeah. who've been you know the way you've got say like three Hollywood stars and Stephen yeah. Mangan sat on the side like look, looking a bit <laughs> nervous and making jokes about the fact that he's not as famous as the other ones you know you've got this great interplay going on through the whole show and then somebody's there to plug their record yeah. doesn't say something particularly witty or engaging but Chaz and Dave would take over yeah. you know you could, I seem to remember you know not that I have many positive things to say about Michael Parkinson in general but I seem to remember them being on with him and him getting quite annoyed that they didn't need his prompting yeah. to, you know to go into obviously well honed anecdotes and it's made just about the, you know the music is fine but they were a complete act and I think that's why people love them I mean you say the music is fine but it is a hard heart that doesn't like the sideboard song by Chaz and Dave I could literally listen to that non-stop for an entire day and I would n- I'll never get sick of the sideboard song look I mean I'm, I mean I love it as I'm talking about this I do sense that I may be on my own here but I know that there's people listening to this right now up to two or three of them who are agreeing with me I think they're more popular than you think I don't really that kind of act you would normally there'd be loads of jokes about them people waiting to give them a kicking when they turn up on the top of the pops repeats but Chas mm. and Dave there, never, there seems to be that affection towards them which I think is thought really well deserved i think that my generation associate them at some level with moments of their parents being happy your mum and your dad letting their hair down at christmas listening to rabbit or whatever on margate and you know drinking some baby sham and being a bit silly and that to me is Charles and dave in my heart i think of christmas and i think of my parents listening to this we had it on vhs the christmas special and also being in my mother's volvo when she was driving places and she would have the CD of it, you know, it's all the greatest hits and just a carefree time and a happy time. So yeah, it's always special in my heart, Chas and Dave. Well, what I would put on that has that kind of resonance for Christmas for me is Jordan in the Ice World which is 
a little known, I say feature length, it was 30 minutes, it was a feature length for a children's animation, Christmas special of Chorten the Wheelies. You'd think it was shown a couple of times, but I probably would have, I can vaguely remember seeing it on the first showing on Boxing Day in 1977. And obviously it was repeated a couple of times, including in 1991, weirdly enough. I don't know what it was doing there. But to me, that had that kind of thing of, I mean, I like a lot of the stuff people do now, but you know, the hauntology thing, that aspect of the 70s where, you know, everything was really creepy, but not everything was because my main memories of childhood in the 70s, are, you know, and this is even, this is in quite a beaten down town, you know, that wasn't in a good economic position at that point in time, of things looking kind of, looking like Christmas, you know, yeah. everything being gaudy and spangly, you know, like those fizzy drinks you used to get on the Alpine lorry that, you know, <laughs> yeah. the cream soda looked like it could corrode your skin if it touched you, but <laughs> things like Jordan the Wheelies and Jamie and the Magic Torch, Oh God! I yeah. kind of look in my head like Christmas did, you know, when we had an artificial tinsel tree when yeah. I was really... It was so exciting because it was a programme that I loved going on for even longer. And the story is that Fenella the Witch casts a spell that leads Chorten and the Wheelies. The thing to say is Claptrap and Riley, who with the spell book and the telescope that argue with her, are actually quite frightened by the spell she's going to cast. Fenella's scary. Like, I've got a real air of Fenella about me I just I've always like seen her as a real kindred spirit like about once a year some kind of hit and run person on the internet you'll see me on MasterChef and send me a picture of Fenella and I always think like I'm a child of the 70s do you think you're the first person to point this out <laughs> I had a little look at this Christmas special and I just thought it was wonderful. I'd forgotten how good the, the song was, the theme tune, and how lovable Charlton and the Wheelies is because, you know, it's a very base feeling of the fact that, you know, Charlton is just really good, isn't he? He's like, he's a pure heart that tries to see the pureness and even when he's getting completely, when Fenella's got some... Fenella's got something and she wants to kill him again. And he's like, she's just a little old lady. <laughs> Well, that's the thing in this. The whole thing is they're confronted by some scary snowmen and they're snow king. And Jordan defeats them because they get annoyed that he keeps making jokes. Aww. That's it. He just annoys them by being funny. Be more Chorlton. Okay, well, I said that the spell that Fenella conjured up in Jordan and the Ice World was terrifying even to her spell book and telescope. But I'd sure to think what the reaction would have been if you'd somehow managed to conjure up your next choice. <laughs> That was a clip of Bund from the Pubs, which frankly they should have been by Peter and the Test Tube Babies. Grace, what are they doing anywhere near Christmas? Peter and the Test Tube Babies takes me back to a point when I was at secondary school, probably in either the, what do they call it now? It was the first or the second year. I don't know what they call that now. At my school, there was a big craze 
for people being into that. Now, I've seen it called the punk pathetic genre. And apparently it was Gary Bushell that coined this phrase because obviously he was really into punk. Punk pathetic. I didn't know that term at the time. It includes Peter and Test Two Babies, Toy Dolls. Some people say Half Man, Half Biscuit. Was that other band Splodginess Abounds? Cockney Rejects, I assume, as well. Yeah, I mean, basically, if I think back to Christmas around 1985 and there being, you know, come to school in your own clothes day, getting up near Christmas or, you know, Christmas parties, I can think of lots of the lads coming with kind of Peter and the Test Tube Babies T-shirts and stuff like that because it was a type of post-punk that was very working class and very silly, like punk but in a really silly way, like a silly kind of aggressive, quite rude, like purposefully rude. The album that we were all really into was called The Loud Blaring Punk Rock Album. It's out in 1985, released on Hairy Pie Records. And you look at the track listing and it is, they're all filthy, you know, that's like, it goes from pick your nose and eat it to <laughs> pick your nose, bracket and eat it to the one that we all sang, and I'm going to have to say it, it's rude, Vickers Wank 2, Tupperware Party, Student <laughs> Wankers, Child Molester, you know, it's like purposefully, it's almost like cartoon punk, but kind of dwelling on things about, it's like one big long kind of Shane Meadows film. <laughs> <laughs> We loved it, you know, we loved the fact that, you know, swapping these illicit tapes of Peter and Test Your Babies, I mean, even the name, even the name, you know, it's like sounds, it was rude. But Toy Dolls, I mean, I don't know how you feel about the Toy Dolls, but I have like, you know, a real fondness for them. It was very homespun. It was very, you know, at times twee, but also with a real edge. And of course, Half Man, Half Biscuit were massive at my school. You know, though we just... Also on John Peel, he played a lot of that, didn't he? Um, so yeah, I never meet anybody that knows about Peter and the Test Tube Babies. I was like looking into them over the last few days. And they're kind of... I don't think they perform. Maybe they do perform. I, I don't think they've performed for a while. But you know, Pete Bywater and Del Strangefish, they do still seem to be kicking about and you know doing podcasts and speaking at punk events. And they, you know, they're older now. But yeah, I don't know. I mean, it was purposely silly and not at all politically correct I mean I don't even know whether you should go and even have a look at the album titles but it was special to me well I remember them in the context it's interesting that you mentioned tapes of them being passed around because there was that whole thing about I mean some of the acts that I'm going to mention now not necessarily endorsing in this day and age but there was that thing of tapes being passed around in school and I remember Pete and the Test Tube Babies there was a sort of thing you would not have dared go into a shop and buy yeah there were things like there were them there was the either big and albums which is doc cox doing you know sort of comedy rude songs yeah. the mac lads who, i'll be honest i never liked jimmy jones the comedian gobshite the jerry sadovitz live album which apparently was withdrawn because i say he libeled jimmy savile on it obviously it later turned out to be true yeah. but these tapes would be passed around and it did often feel like it was in you know the winter term leading up to christmas somebody would somehow get hold of one of these things yes and they'd go around and isn't it odd to think there was that thing of everything feeling under the counter a bit like this was this was kind of handed round illicitly in those days as well well the maclets were you know massive in the 80s amongst school kids just the idea that it was kind of quite gruff northern men performing songs about whatever their girlfriends and stuff and you know just dropping the f-bomb all over the place it wasn't much different than uh, roy chubby brown crossed with the 
pistols, was it, really? I mean, but however, I do think it was very important to a lot of people in the same way as psychobilly was at my school as well, you know, King Kurt. So you do wince when you look at some of it now and it's not stood the test of time. You wouldn't stick it on in a car with a mixed group of people. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, those tapes being passed around and somebody giving you like a homemade tape of the Mac lads to go home and listen to. It was a big deal, you know, same for King Kurt and a lot of the psychobilly stuff. You know, this was a point in history that gave kids a real sense of ownership over something and and that can only be a good thing well for my equivalent to that i'm going to go in quite a different direction which is a band that maybe a lot of people don't know about from the early 90s called the stirs who had a modicum of national attention for a while they were from liverpool and they're huge in liverpool because they were kind of a break with how liverpool was viewed you know because you had the whole thing of people just mentioning the beatles all the time and then there was that you know when bands like the Lars appeared the music press tried to do this scally delic thing which you know none of these people in these bands were scallies scallies were like raving and so whatever they called raving in those days the stirs were they weren't that much older than the people i was friends with at that point and their debut single was called weed bus which is basically about smoking a joint on the bus, which is somehow playlisted by Radio 1. And it felt like a victory because they weren't just copying, you know, the 60s sounds. It was like kind of, you know, that weird, dense sound you got as the 50s moved into the 60s. And they recorded yeah. in mono, but they were singing about the places that we knew, the bus routes that we knew. Yeah. The 147, which was a snooker club that, you know, it was the only place you could go if you were that age because it was open 24 hours. It didn't serve alcohol. So, you know, when you were 14 or whatever, could go in and there were no problems and that spread like wildfire just it's bizarre that i later came to know them and in fact edgar he called himself edgar summertime at that point edgar jones is probably listening to this so happy christmas edgar <laughs> it's very odd that you know it's a single that's forgotten by the rest of the world but everyone i know you know when they have a huge landmark birthday party we bus will always be put on amongst you know all the theme from s express or whatever and everyone goes wild for it and you know that was december 1990 and I've never forgotten the thrill of that feeling like, you know, in what was a much less kind of globalised world that we were sort of on the map. You know, you told me about this and I was having a look at it and I don't know where I was at this point, but this song completely passed me by. And it's a bloody good song. I mean, it's, yeah. it's incredible, isn't it? It says, and I just thought, I mean, obviously I just fell in love with Edgar immediately. I mean, what a front man. He's just like completely brilliant. So, yeah, yeah, it was, it was you know, a real sound of Liverpool as well you know it's got like Liverpool right through it hasn't it like a stick of rock okay well that would have been your last choice but I think we've got a visitor Okay, that was, of course, the Mac Tedroom Broadcasting <laughs> Intrusion. <laughs> Grace, why do you, not even why do you want this on Christmas Day, why do you want it anywhere at all? It's terrifying. Well, listen, nobody really wants or expects <laughs> Mac Tedroom Broadcast Signal Intrusion. Nobody's expecting him. But what I would like, if I could have my perfect Christmas, was that 
you've just been through to the kitchen and it's about <laughs> 10 o'clock and you've got you've made yourself you know your third turkey sarning and you sit down and you just have enough you know five minutes you're gonna you, finally you've got the telly to yourself you've had a few drinks so you're feeling a bit woozy <laughs> and then suddenly massive massive distorted max headroom face <laughs> appears and he's going Ah, I've got it. He's throwing, he's throwing Pepsi cans at the screen, and he's just, she's burbling and burbling about a cartoon that only played in was it Chicago? Oh, yes, Clutch Cargo, yeah. Which you see the Pulp Fiction, bizarrely, it's what Bruce Willis as a boy is watching. So he's he's burbling and he's burbling, and then suddenly there's a very crude kind of change of camera, and he's got his ass out. And he's being hit by, now I think about it, it looks like one of the, that the lady on the butthole surface. <laughs> Do you know what? I would not be surprised if they were involved. No, I know. It's exactly the kind of thing they did. And then basically, I was reading about, because I mean, I, I do do other things other than read about the Max Headroom broadcasting. <laughs> I just, I just want to say. But I was reading about it recently, about people that were actually at the TV station that night saying how terrifying it was that you started to realise that you just had no control at all. When, I think <laughs> when he went to the bit when he was having his bum spanked, that's when it got really frightening. So, yes, <laughs> my dream Christmas would end up with Max Headroom. Is, he 30, is his intrusion 32 years old now? It would be another Max Headroom intrusion for, you know, just to bring it, to bring this whole thing up to date. <laughs> and what I would say is that I would, I think I, I don't want to know the end of the story and I don't want to know who he is, but I would like to see him come back. Uh, did, you, did you see this year? Because I think it was November the 20th or something that happened. Somebody wrote on Twitter, happy Max Headroom broadcast signal. In <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, Tim! I'm going I'm to celebrate that. <laughs> like, did you think that? Because this is it. This is why we think alike. The I saw that, I thought, me and Tim Worthington should really start celebrating that every year. Just, like, every year we should try and get, we should bring more and more people into our cult of terror. Well, the things I would end with, no less terrifying, are first of all, there's the year that on Christmas Day, on the test card, they airbrushed the girl out so it's just the clown. And so, obviously, she was coming looking for you. <laughs> there are screams grabs of that out there it did happen but the other thing was i think this was in 1989 new year's eve so i'm cheating for a bit into new year's day in the granada region we had envision announcers you know will pop up before things and say uh, well let's see what the people of coronation street are up to but there were three in particular who were like a rotating team there was charles foster who was a respectable kind of guy there was colin weston who was like a young trendy and jim pope or as we called him in our house beardy man and you'll <laughs> know their voices even if you're not from Granada because they narrated all kinds of things like University Challenge Busman's Holiday which is the quiz show about people doing each other's jobs where yes. one week it had a team of nuns on and the thing they used to bleep out swearing was obviously broken whenever they spoke it was being bleeped and <laughs> I think oh the nuns are swearing but this new year at midnight, the three of them, I would so love somebody to tape this, were in the continuity studio, not actually holding up bottles of booze, but they'd obviously been celebrating with like, hey, lads, happy you <laughs> It was like television had like loosened its tie. <laughs> <laughs> and it was the fact they were also respectable normally. <laughs> 
Oh, my. do you know something? I think that we have put together the most wonderful <laughs> Christmas. <laughs> I, you know, people's, people probably heard this concept and said, can they do it? And I think that they're probably finding, yes, yes, we did. We did <laughs> Christmas by a thousand percent and that's just maths tim well i hope you've all enjoyed this because i know some of you won't be able to go anywhere this christmas day so i hope we've improved it a bit there's also an episode coming out as well of my marvel podcast it's good except it sucks with mick wright talking about the x-men cartoon christmas episode but happy christmas all of you happy christmas grace oh happy christmas to you and honestly if you can't get out of the house because of the recent events just put on the Max Headroom signal intrusion <laughs> and just watch that again and again. And then obviously find the picture of the, of the missing girl and <laughs> try to think she's in your house. <laughs> what a lovely festive note to end on. <laughs> Grace, happy Christmas. Tales to Worthington.org. Vengeance.